Thank you for listening to the Healthcare Podcast with Dr. K and Lindsay, where we aim to uncover the myths of modern healthcare to help families discover cost transparency, improved access, and innovation. Dr. John Kaiser is a practicing OBGYN and the president of Salser Health. And Lindsay Heiner is a healthcare advocate and a mother of four kids. Now, let's talk healthcare. Lindsay, good to see you again. Nice to see you, Dr. Kaiser. Yeah. Enjoying their, our nice mild winter we're having, right? Absolutely. I tried cross-country skiing for the first time. Cool. It was great. Yeah. We're not on Lake Cascade. Yeah. It's a nice day. I did that in Sun Valley this year. And the only problem was when you try to go up, you know, that's, that's too much work. <laughs> no. And I had a little slope, you know, it was like a couple of feet and I yeah. fell down. Excellent. It's <laughs> like, Excellent. this is a big, <laughs> big slope. Taking chances. Yeah. Good deal. <laughs> well, today uh, we have a great uh, guest with us. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Um, this is Jesse Klebeck. And Jesse, why don't you give a little bit of your background for us? Yeah. So I went to undergrad at College of Idaho in Caldwell, and then I stayed in the Northwest and went to medical school at University of Washington, then went all the way across the country to Vermont for residency which Dr. Kaiser knows yes, well. exactly. Um, and then I w- did a trauma fellowship right outside Sacramento and then settled back in the Treasure Valley at St. Luke's for about a year and a half. And I've joined Seltzer Orthopedics now. Cool. Yeah. You got to see the East and the West. Excellent. All over. All over the place. That's great. Uh, Vermont is another great place for cross-country skiing. Okay. So tell um, me about your Vermont So background. I did my residency there. Oh, okay. Um, and... Uh, so uh, that's the first place I think I did cross-country skiing, back okay. to that theme. And they're very serious about that. Uh, I got tired, so I like took them off and I'm like walking. And they were like, <laughs> you do not walk on cross-country trails. You're like not meant to be in cold places. No. He told me about ice fishing. Yeah. He's like, no. Nah. What's the point? What's the point of this? <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> back to, yeah, our topic to, is surgery. Back to We've, our topic. Yeah. So, and our last podcast we just did was with an anesthesiologist. Yeah, so it's kind of fitting. We got the anesthesia first yep. and now we got the surgery. Absolutely. So that's great. Um, so let's go through a few reasons why someone would need surgery that you would perform um, and some of the conditions that might make you need to seek an orthopedic surgeon, such as arthritis. Yeah. So the main reason we're doing joint replacement surgery is for arthritis. And most of the time it's kind of garden variety wear and tear arthritis where there isn't any rheumatologic or inflammatory conditions, but Mm -hmm. just good old fashioned wear and tear over the years. Um, And the reason we eventually do a joint replacement is because people are having too much pain to function and take care of their daily activities. And that's really kind of the only reason that somebody would need a joint replacement is that they've lost their ability to do what they need to and to take care of themselves. Yeah. Um, when you have, so, so what are the breakpoints that you kind of go to in making that decision on whether you need surgery? Pain, obviously said is one. Do you try other things first to try and see if, if uh, they could survive without the surgery? Absolutely. So we we like to do a stepwise approach where we start with non-invasive and easy things like activity modification, trying to avoid things that hurt Mm -hmm. or cause a lot of pain, weight loss, getting down to a healthy body weight, not putting extra stress on those joints. Then we start thinking about pharmacologic options like anti-inflammatories. And if those don't work, then we generally move on to injections, which are usually either steroids or a synthetic lubricant. And then after that, we start to run out of options. Yeah. And that's when we start talking about surgery. Is there a time frame that they 
tend to help with like the injections and stuff like that? Is, is it limited more by time or not really? It's it's person dependent. Yeah. I would say most people get decent relief from their first one or two steroid injections, and that can often last six months to a year or yeah. even longer. Um, the synthetic lubricant injections are a little more variable. Some people have great responses and get over a year relief and some people they're not as effective for. So those are a little more trial and error. Yeah. 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 Um, go ahead. Yeah. So I think it's just interesting if you're, if you're a patient and you're thinking about surgery, it's, I think that's this discussion we can kind of say, what are the five things that you need to know before surgery? So that first part is like, do I need surgery? Yeah. Number one, and making that determination, right? You've tried other things and you, and now you're at the point where do I actually need to proceed with surgery? So I guess the second thing is what's involved in that surgery? What, what is a joint replacement surgery? Yeah. So when we do a joint replacement, usually we're thinking of the hip and knee, though there are other joint replacements. Um, but we're taking off the end of the bone, which no longer has good healthy cartilage as a padding, and we're getting rid of that and putting a metal implant in place with a pla some sort of plastic liner, either a cup in the hip or it's a tray in the knee. Mm. And that's replacing that cartilage. So you're actually walking on metal on plastic. So what's what's the likelihood that that will work? So they're they're really effective these days. You know, it hasn't always been that way, but especially with hips, their longevity is great and they often last 30, 40 years sometimes with the newer plastics coming out. Knees, um, we're still figuring out to some degree. I would say 90% of people are really happy with their knees, but they don't last quite as long as the hips do, partly because it's just a more complicated joint. It's not a ball and socket and there's a lot to it. So recreating how it was made is not exactly straightforward and we haven't totally figured that out yet. Are there different devices that you can use or select from? There's a number of different manufacturers. They all have somewhat of a similar theme, but we're still trying to figure out exactly what is the single best way to do it. So you'll hear a variety of ways that people do and different implants that people use. And okay, so moving on to the third thing is, um, what are the risks of joint replacement surgery? What are things that the patients come to you um, and they're concerned about it? What are some of the risks that they need to take in? Um, Absolutely. In, you know, starting from the beginning with anesthesia, I mean, anesthesia is very safe. It's mm -hmm. probably safer than driving your car on the freeway, but things can happen all the way up to death. And so we don't kind of think of any surgery as being a small surgery when you're undergoing anesthesia. So you know, there's there's risks with anesthesia, but for the most part, that's very safe. More of the risks come on kind of the surgery and patient side of things. Um, one of the big ones we think about is blood clots or a deep vein thrombosis. That's common after any surgery where we've kind of disturbed the limb and now you've got reduced motion and reduced muscles to help push that blood flow out. So most often after a joint replacement, you'll be on some sort of prophylaxis to prevent blood clots, whether that's aspirin or an injection or something stronger is kind of dependent on the patient itself and the risks that that person has. So when do, that, when do they usually manifest a blood clot? Blood clots are usually fairly early on within one to two weeks from surgery. Mm. Um, and that generally more common in knees than in hips because you're not moving that knee uh. as much because it's sore after surgery. Mm. And so that often manifests as pain in the calf, tenderness, if you even kind of push lightly on that calf. Sometimes it's red and irritated. And so that generally prompts us to get an ultrasound to look at that and make sure we're not missing something. But all patients don't go on anticoagulation therapy after knees. 
Most people do. Most people yeah. Do. Okay. And we've, we've tapered that back over the years. It used to be kind of injectable, yeah. kind of heavy duty. And then it kind of went to high dose aspirin. And now we're most often doing 81 milligrams yeah. aspirin twice a day. Wow. So we've kind of really unless tapered they some and, other risk factors. Yeah. Unless they so. have a history yeah. of blood clot yeah. or something else yeah, going cool. on. That's great. That's great. Oh uh, yeah. Do you do typically with knees? Do you do just one? What if a patient says has both knees that are going out? Do you typically do just one? Oh, I know for a while there was some thought that you can do two do both of them at the same then, time. Yeah, and that kind of backed away. There's that's that's also kind of patient and doctor specific. Okay. Um, I I tend to lean more on the conservative side. I like doing one at a time and at least having one good leg to yep. stand on, even if it is an arthritic worn yeah. out leg. But uh, you know, in some of the younger, healthier patients that are really going to be able to power through rehab, we'll consider doing both at oh, the same time. Oh, oh. Uh, what about the risk of infection? So infection in a total joint is kind of one of the joint surgeon's biggest fear, because once that happens, it can be very challenging to get rid of. So we kind of do everything humanly possible to prevent that, starting with five days before surgery, you're cleaning your surgery site with chlorhexidine wipes to try and decrease the bacterial load. Then we're given antibiotics before and after surgery. I even put some antibiotic powder in the knees after I've done them. Um, and then after that, we're keeping a close eye on the joint. We're avoiding any dental work or anything that's going to get bacteria in your bloodstream for a period of months after surgery. Because hmm. even though the joint very rarely gets infected from the surgery site, it often comes from the bloodstream. And so every time we brush our teeth, floss, even have a bowel movement, you get that's bacteria in your bloodstream. And usually it gets filtered out by your spleen and your immune system. But every once in a while, it gets through and gets to a point like an artificial joint where it's not supposed to be. And it's hard for the body to get rid of that infection mm -hmm. once it's in a joint. So have you seen that happen where after the fact, they've gotten an infection not related to the surgery? That's that's the most common type of joint infection is usually it can be years after kind of a great functioning joint. And it's just bad luck most oftentimes. Mm -hmm. Whoa. And then what does the patient do if that happens? So that involves us having to open the joint up clean it out, often change out the plastic liner in between. And then it's six weeks of antibiotics through an IV and it's, it's a major disruption to life. Yeah. So we, we take it very, very seriously. Wow. Any other risks, um, kind of common risks that patients should be aware of? You know, the, the other kind of lesser risks that we think about are stiffness and that's more, more prominent in knees. Um, you know, you kind of have a period of six to eight weeks to really get that knee moving after surgery, or it's going to get tight and then it's going to be a lot harder to get that motion back. So we focus the first kind of four weeks pretty aggressively with physical therapy in terms of getting that knee moving. Every once in a while, people need to go back and have their knee kind of manipulated while they're asleep to get that range of motion back. But we try everything to avoid that and keep people moving right away. So you encourage them to get moving Absolutely. afterwards. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So that, that leads right into the fourth thing that people need to know is what is the recovery? What does that look like yeah. after surgery? So it's, it's a little dependent on the joint. Um, for whatever reason, hip, hip arthritis, people seem to have a lot of immediate relief. And so people are up moving around and walking pretty darn quickly after a hip replacement. I would say knees, partly because of the manipulation we have to do to get exposure and to see the bone surfaces, they tend to be a lot more painful afterwards. So 
you know, I usually tell people for the first two weeks, they're not going to be my biggest fan. <laughs> and so they're going to be unhappy and cursing my name. But once you get through that kind of acute inflammation period, your motion is getting better, you're getting stronger and people start to really move. What is the physical therapy, which is so important for them in the recovery? What does it look like? Do they have to go uh, to classes and stuff or do they do it at home? Or what So do they do? for my knees, I send everybody to physical therapy yeah. just because having somebody there that is keeping an eye on yeah. you every session, making sure you're getting your motion right, doing the exercises correctly is important. And that's a person that can report back to us if things are not going as planned. With hips, I generally just let people get up and start moving. They don't seem to get stiff like knees do, and there's not really quite as much involved in recovering from those. That's interesting because you, I would think uh, that the hip would be a bigger surgery and more risk of complication, but it sounds like I'd, they I'd, do really yeah. well. Yeah. I agree with you. It, I mean, in my mind, at least, it is a bigger surgery. Yeah. It's There's usually more kind of dissection. It's a yeah. little more technical. Um, but for whatever reason, the people knees. seem to get up and move well. Hmm. The knees have more pain afterwards. Uh, are there certain surgical approaches that, uh, that you can take that would make it easier to recover from? Yeah. So that, that mainly applies to the hip. Yeah. Um, there's several approaches. There's the direct anterior, which is kind of the newest approach to hip surgery, where we go through the front of the hip and we technically call it muscle sparing and that we don't actually cut directly into the muscles. We kind of oh, pull them to okay. the side and go through. But that's a little bit of a misnomer because we're still having to move those muscles out of the way. And so it's not like they're not getting at least somewhat kind of tugged on and irritated. Mm -hmm. But um, that's compared to the more traditional approach, which is the posterior approach to the hip, where we split the gluteus maximus, which is kind of your big butt muscle. And so, you know, we that's definitely not muscle sparing. And we split those fibers, but they eventually heal. And both approaches work really well. Yeah. Um, in the literature, at least at kind of big academic centers, there's no difference in recovery time between the two. Anecdotally, I would say I really like the direct anterior approach, and I think people maybe recover a little bit quicker, but that really hasn't been shown in the literature to actually kind of persist past maybe six weeks. Is there a reason that you would pick one over the other? Usually it's kind of patient size. The yeah. direct anterior is a good approach, but as patients get bigger or yeah. they have a little belly that might hang over their groin, uh, yeah. that area is not the most hospitable to put an incision. Gotcha. So yeah. um, there are people that kind of one works better than the other. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, this kind of goes back to the risks, but um, are there certain things that put you at higher risk? Like I, I would think it just comes to my mind, obesity. Does that put you at higher risk for some complications and surgery? It does. We know, you know, we use the body mass index, which is a ratio between your height and weight. And we know that as people get over a BMI of 40, that their risk of complications with joint surgery goes up. Just all comers, not any single complication, but all complications are higher. So we really encourage people if they can to kind of get down to a healthier body weight if possible before surgery. Have you seen that with patients that they'll do that? They'll take an effort to, to get to a better spot before they do the surgery? It is. And we've gotten more stringent as that evidence has come out that the body weight does have such a big factor on things. So we will even send people to bariatric surgery mm. to have kind of gastric mm. bypass done and to really get that weight off. And it's impressive the people that have really gone through with it, how much it changes every aspect every of their life, life yeah. even to the point where we've had people who are on oxygen around the clock and really not mobile and they lose a couple hundred pounds and 
they have honestly a new lease on life. And so it's really hmm. cool to be a part of that journey. No, that's really cool. So the most important question for travel. So when I get my knee replaced, I, I always have to be patted down or can you go through the... <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's right? A, yeah, you hear that about that. That is an incredibly common question. <laughs> um, you know, with the new surface scanners where you put your hands above your oh, head yeah, and it spins have, around, yeah. they don't really pick up anything um, deep to the skin. So those don't set off. But if you go through the old fashioned metal yeah. detector, then... It probably will set it off and you'll get the special wand treatment yeah. to make sure you're not hiding anything. <laughs> okay. Let's our fifth thing that I guess patients need to know here is how long can they expect that joint replacement to last once they've had the surgery? Yeah. So as long as no kind of complications happen in the acute post-operative period, you know, a total hip, the limiting factor is often the plastic, and that should last us, honestly, 30 years if things okay. go wow. as planned. Yeah. You know, the things that we worry about that would change that course is infection, like we talked about. And then specifically in the knee, we worry about the implants loosening up over time. And so, you know, if things are kind of seated in there well and they stay put, that plastic in the knee should last 15, 20 years at least. Um, I would say if you look at the literature... About 85% of people at 15 years still have all their original parts, which okay. is not not bad, but it's not nearly as good as the hips are. The oh. hips are up in 90, 95%. Wow. So you can change just the plastic though? You can yeah, so if, get a new if plastic insert? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if it's just the plastic that's wearing out, like your cartilage worn yeah. out, that's a relatively small procedure oh. to go in and swap that out. Okay. If the implants are loosening, then that's a much yeah. bigger procedure where you're going to have a bigger prosthesis that needs better fixation. So that's that's a much bigger ordeal. Yeah. yeah. So that is typically, if it were to last 15 or 20 years, then at that point, is it just the change of the plastic then? Usually okay. at that point, yeah. yeah. If okay. it's going to loosen up, it's usually in that earlier period. So is it important uh, to delay joint replacement if you're a young person? Uh, do you do you want to delay it as long as possible so that's, that you can like have that 30 years or that 15, 20 years yeah, extend further out? That's that's always kind of a hot debate in our community. And yeah. you you could ask probably five orthopedists and get 10 different answers. Oh, really? <laughs> it's just, you know, some people will say you want to wait as long as possible because you may only have one good shot at surgery. And so you want that to last. Well, other people say, well, I want you to be functional while you're younger and are working. Mm -hmm. And so we want to get you as much mobility as you can. So Interesting. It, it really comes down to the patient um, and kind of the situation. In terms of hips, we're far more aggressive at doing surgery on younger people. Um, I won't really think a whole lot of it if we're doing a hip on a 40 or 50 year old. Mm -hmm. That's that's very well within the norm. But if if a person is in their 40s and has bad knee arthritis, we're we're much more nervous about that. So that's when we consider other surgery options like doing an osteotomy to change the alignment of the joint or other things to try and prolong that period of time before they need mm -hmm. surgery. So what's kind of the typical age range for a knee replacement? I would say 60s. Okay. Yeah. That's, you know, we, we see, start seeing people a lot in their fifties when they're becoming symptomatic and we try and kind of get them through that period and keep them as functional as we can. And then once they're kind of getting into their sixties, that's a very, at least for my practice, that's a very reasonable time to consider. It's much earlier like your cross country ski. Yeah, I, better, I better back up especially, off of that. Especially if you fall a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so is there anything that you can do to prevent arthritis? Yeah. Um, 
Most of it is stuff we can't control, right. things like genetics, things like you've been in a traumatic ac accident and had injury to that joint. Those oh, okay. things are kind of outside our realm of control. But, you know, maintaining a healthy body weight, staying active, you know, there's there's rumors out there that people will wear out their joints if they're too active yeah, right. or if they're runners and things like that. And that has never really panned out in research. So, okay. you know, it's not kind of a use it or lose it type of thing. You can still use your joints and have healthy, long lasting joints. Yeah. Staying active is good. Any other <laughs> myths that you can think of that your patients bring up to you about joint replacement surgery and well, you know, we were talking about risk factors for complications. Diabetes is another big yeah. one. Um, we know as the your blood sugar levels get higher, your ability to fight infection okay. is reduced. And so we like to see people kind of have their blood sugars under good control before we consider surgery. And that's yeah. another thing that we will delay surgery out for, um, kind of like weight is trying to get things under a good, healthy control before we dive in. Yeah. And in relation to the anesthesia, do you mm -hmm. do most of uh, your work under regional anesthesia? Yep. The I would say probably 90% or more are under spinal anesthesia yeah. where they get a kind of two hour block and yep. they're just sedated and comfortable and then wake up and they're like start moving and they don't have that grogginess from general anesthesia and some of the nausea and other side effects that go along with that. So if we can, if we can do it under spinal anesthesia, we generally will. Okay. And is that, can you have surgery and be done the same day? Yeah. That's a good question. So historically, definitely not, but that has changed over the last 20 years. And there's definitely been a push towards kind of maximizing our ability to control people's pain after surgery, yep. as well as getting them moving earlier. And so there are some places that are doing total knee replacements as an outpatient surgery and total hip replacement has been added to the outpatient surgery code. So that will be coming too for total hips. Wow. Um, hmm. But that that's in selected patients. That's in kind of younger, healthier patients that are able to help care for themselves and have a good support system. Um, so a, a standard, a typical patient in their 60s, would they expect to stay most most of my patients stay overnight and okay. then go home the next day. And I would say mm -hmm. hips or knees, usually by lunchtime the next day, they're getting packed up and ready to mm -hmm. go. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the others uh, have like protocols to try and reduce that pain to mm -hmm. help them in their recovery. Do they do that in the orthopedic surgery? Yeah, we're, we, we have a regimen. And so with knees, they also get a nerve block oh. from the front of the knee to try and calm down some of that incision pain. So they yeah. get that before surgery. And we do that with a long lasting local anesthetic that often will last kind of 48 to 72 hours often. And then we have kind of what we call a multimodal pain management strategy, which is using lots of different receptors that act through the pain response and trying to knock out all of those. So we do Tylenol, we do medicines for nerve pain, yeah. and then anti-inflammatories as well. And then we like to limit the amount of narcotic pain medications we give as much as possible because those have their own side effects yeah. and risks. And so we're really striving towards limiting the amount of pain meds as much as possible while keeping people comfortable enough to move and do the physical therapy they need yeah. to. Yeah. So for patients, is there a possibility? Could you have a pain-free surgery? 
or what? How do we Pain, manage our expectations? Pain free? No. I, <laughs> I wish I, I would be very popular. If we could do that. Um, but no, we haven't figured that out. But you know, the biggest thing is just kind of knowing that you're going to have pain, especially in a knee replacement. There's there's no way you're not going to have pain after surgery. But knowing that it's a temporary pain and it's not like the pain you've been living with for years that right. this is going to be limited to a couple weeks. And once we get you through it, then you're going to be kind of moving and feeling better. So. And what does their activity look like after that recovery period? Right. I mean, can you share some examples of, with patients like how their day-to-day um, -day life kind of changes after that yeah. procedure? Yeah. So, you know, um, with a knee, most people are using a walker for a week or two and then transition to a cane. And then usually by the four-week to six-week mark, they're not using any assistive devices. And Usually by the three month mark, they don't have much of a limp and they're kind of really okay. starting to cruise around. But it it takes honestly a six months to a year to really be not thinking about your joint because it's been in pain for a long time before surgery. And then we do a painful surgery and you're working on your rehab. And usually people's muscles are kind of weakened and deconditioned going in because you're favoring that painful leg. So it takes a long time to build those muscles up again. So it's it's a process. I was just gonna say, does it work like a, can they do the same activities that they could before when they were healthy, when their, you know, when their knee was in a good condition? Yeah. Is it pretty so, much the same activity? For the most part. Yeah. We don't, we don't like people to run on total joints. Okay. So if you're a big runner, I would try and keep your parts as long as possible because that plastic is gotten much better and it wears a lot slower than it used to, but it's not meant for that kind of impact loading. And so we like people to avoid running if possible. You know, things like hiking in the foothills, totally reasonable. Um, How about other exercise like biking? Biking. Yeah. Biking is a great kind yeah. of non-weight bearing activity. Swimming, all yeah. of those things are great to do. Um, I even, I let my patients with knees ski. Um, I like them to stick to the groomers if, uh, <laughs> if they can do that. Um, but, you know. We, we want people to get back to the activities they enjoy doing because that's an important part of life. Oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah. So where do most of your patients come from? Do they usually get referred by primary care docs or do the patients book appointments with you? It's a, it's a little bit of a mixture. Oh. I would say a lot of people come through their primary care docs. A lot of the primary care docs in town are comfortable doing joint injections. Yeah. So they've kind of oh. gotten them along okay. for a year or so. Yep. And then when those injections stop working, they say, all right, let's, let's get you to somebody to take a closer look. Gotcha. Cool. Great. Yeah. Well, I learned so much. Thanks yeah, so much, Dr. Sweetbeck. Great. Appreciate all the information. Excellent. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. Yes. Best of luck to you here. Thank yes. you very much. You've been listening to the Healthcare Podcast with Dr. K and Lindsay. Join us again for our next episode as we work toward increasing understanding and transparency in healthcare. care.